Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. This is Todd Fredericks, DO, uh, Associate Professor of Primary Care at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine in lovely Athens, Ohio, which doesn't have any mountains, not like the Salt Lake Valley of Utah. And today we're talking to Brian Giles, Dr. Brian Giles, DO, a ophthalmologist in, you haven't finished residency yet. You're in your last year. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yes, right? Sir. You're going to be the chief resident. I am, yes, sir. You're already the chief resident. I have been for, uh, let's see. Five months now, four months now. Holy cow, we got to talk about that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what what is a chief resident, Brian? Yeah, so a chief resident is, in every program is a little different. Sometimes like an internal medicine chief resident is um, your first year when you're out of residency and they've elected you to come back and be a, a chief resident, being like the leader of the residents. Um, within our program, they select an Army chief resident every year and an Air Force chief resident. So there's two two chief residents that are, are among the senior class residents, and uh, you know basically the punching bag between the the residents and the staff. Um, it's kind of always our, our our running joke, but uh, no, really it's, it's an opportunity for for us as senior leaders within the program to to help fight for our junior residents and to and kind of like you said within policy making, it's um, it's no longer. You know, just helping out in, in small ways. It's trying to make big systematic changes within the program to help out. We also deal with day-to-day stuff with like taking leave and, and, and other issues that come up. But really, it's it's uh, it's our job to try to help focus and uh, and and change the the direction of, of the program in a way that we think is is beneficial for for residents. That's that is that is that's awesome. That's that's the that is the definition of service, right? With to your profession is looking out for the juniors, trying to help them, and trying to help the program be better. That's that's service, right? Yep, absolutely. That's a good place to be. So let's focus on ophthalmology on this, on this segment. And so what I want to ask is, if a medical student is coming to rotate in ophthalmology, right, can you think, mm-hmm. what are the top, we always ask this on, this, is, this goes into a thing called specialty spotlight. So each specialty we talk about this. What are the top 10 diagnoses in ophthalmology? What are the, what are the conditions that you just, if you're going to do an ophthalmology rotation, you just have to know this is the top 10. This is like 95% of everything we deal with. So can you think of the top 10 things you deal with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me, well, I think you have another question about this, so I'll, I'll probably answer this later if we don't get to it, but some of the, the most common things we see is refractive error, meaning um, people who are, are unable to, to see 20-20 and, and we're able to, to, to correct that with, with lenses or, or contact lenses. That's not something necessarily we deal with. We see it all the time, but uh, that's more of an optometry thing. We deal with a lot of macular degeneration. We deal with a lot of cataracts. Cataracts is our, our bread and butter surgery. 
um, that we're able to do. And we can talk about that a little later too. We do a lot of diabetic retinopathy screenings, with the, especially with our, the growing population of, of diabetics. We, we see a lot of diabetic patients um, and are able to treat them. We see lots of glaucoma. We see patients with amblyopia, uh, meaning that the, like that's the, the typical lazy eye or uh, an eye that just didn't develop as well um, early on during their youth. Uh, we see a lot of strabismus. Um, let's see. We see, well, being in San Antonio, uh, it's not typical of ophthalmologists, but we see a lot of trauma. Um, we see a lot of facial fractures. We see a lot of, of eye injuries. We see a lot of open globes. Um, that's when the eye is cut open or torn open. We, we go there. So it, we see a lot of flash burns, a lot of um, mechanical and then, and then thermal injuries to the eye. Is that 10? I didn't even, I didn't, I wasn't counting. It's pretty close. I think, I think you've covered the bulk of it. Um, you know, the big ones, the macular degeneration, retinopathies, the cataracts, of course, but then the traumatic injuries, which, which begs the question. I mean, uh, BAMC is a trauma center, right? Or is it still, has it lost that designation? Brook Army Medical no, it's, Center. It's, no, it's, yep, it's a level one trauma center and it's uh, the DOD's largest trauma, trauma facility. And what's weird about that is that BAMC will receive civilians, right? They're trauma victims, even though I think they transport them as soon as possible, but they'll they'll get them in as trauma patients, stabilize them. Is that true? How does that work at BAMC? Yep, absolutely. So part of the the, uh, the contract we have with the city of San Antonio, or however all that works, is we take we split. I think it's half and half with us in, in university. So we take we take trauma call, um, and so if somewhere to you know fall and fracture their face when they call in for a for a transfer either. Either goes to us or goes to UT. Um, so absolutely. So we we see a lot of uh, civilian trauma, and actually because we're we're attached to the burn unit here, the burn unit has a very very large umbrella. So it's not uncommon um, to have patients flown in from Mexico or from kind of all over South Texas um, to our burn center as well. Yeah, that should be. We should highlight that because for people who are listening, Brook Army Medical Center probably has the finest burn unit in the world. Um, unfortunately, it's because they deal with burns a lot and uh, especially in the DOD because burns are very common in combat and so um, it, it's interesting that you as an ophthalmologist get some very high level specific training I'm sure consulting in the burn unit have you done a lot of that uh, Brian oh absolutely absolutely even as a first year those first couple months I was started off my rotation on a trauma rotation and uh, and I feel like I lived in the burn unit for three or four hours a day taking care of patients so mm. I was and, it's, and that's, that's very unique to our program as well. Um, I know that our sister program at UT doesn't get the burn experience. I mean, and most ophthalmology programs probably don't get the burn experience either. So that's a very unique thing we, we get to have um, is, the, the ophthalm, is the burn and, and the major trauma center. Yeah. So, so then I, I think about that and I think about you guys, is there a turf transition between you and plastics when you get to the eyelids and stuff, or is that still ophthalmology that will, will address that with a burn patient? Yeah. So we actually have a, a burn plastics, um, doctor here at the, at the ISR, which is our burn center. And so a lot of the, a lot of the, the surgical things with the, with the eyelids get taken care of by him and his team. Um, he's always been very, if we're, if we're interested or want to come join surgery, um, he's always been willing to let us come in and, and be part of that or just come watch. Um, and we have a good relationship with him as well. So oftentimes we're seeing them daily and, and kind of taking care of the, the preventative stuff and, and watching the cornea and making sure there's no alterations or making sure that the eyes are, are well protected. And then we'll reach out to him and say, Hey, um, you know, you know, I think this is probably what, what needs to happen. Um, our two 
classic stats here are completely capable of doing it. It's just because it's within the within the burn unit, they kind of have their own burn plastic doctor. Who again, it's been a great great relationship. Do do you feel like you've gained? Maybe you have or haven't, Brian. But have you gained some skills? As as ophthalmologists do blepharoplasties, right? I mean, they go in there and, and work with the eyelids too. Correct. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, have you picked up skills as far as the management of people who've had severe eyelid injury because of the pla- working with the plastics guys, or have you had a chance to do that yet? Oh, for sure. So, I had a plastic rotation in my first year, mm. um, and I probably, I mean, I met all my plastics members surgery wise within the first couple months just because we have such a, a large, like our, our two oculoplastic surgeons here are amazing. And uh, we get such a, such a just volume. Um, but absolutely. So we, I mean, we, we deal with ectropion or intropion all the time. That's the, the turning in of the, out, of the eyelids or out for the outer eyelids. Mm-hmm. Um, early, I mean, very, very early on in our first year, we're throwing people's eyelids together. We're dealing with some of the, the complications and so uh, it, it's an amazing program or it's an amazing training environment to, to get the exposure. I would say that first six months of residency, um, I've seen enough, seen enough trauma to, to be completely comfortable, um, almost dealing with most, maybe not, maybe not the surgical management of it at that point. Cause as our first years, we're not, we're not doing that much surgery. Um, but as far as just the medicine to take care of it and the, the full management of it, we, we, we see in a volume that uh, we become pretty confident pretty early. So what you're saying is that at this point as a chief resident, if someone walks in with a pencil stuck in their eye, you're like, yeah, okay, what's for lunch? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I just make sure that they haven't eaten lunch and then, and then we'll, we'll take care of it for sure. <laughs> Are you MPO? Because I'm taking you to the OR to get that thing out of there. <laughs> That's right. And restore absolutely. your sight. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so listen, so again, this is another example of I, I wish I could get kids to understand the opportunities the military offers you because – being able to rotate in a residency like that, like I shipped a couple of Ukrainians uh, to BAMSI that the people in Europe were saying they're not going to make it. I'm like, if we get them to BAMSI, they'll make it. They were burned over 60 and 65% of their bodies with partial and full thickness burns. I said, if we can get them to BAMSI, they'll survive because I just knew, I just knew the best, the yep, best work there. Absolutely. And I'm thinking what a great privilege it is to work anywhere near that. And so people are listening to ISR, the Institute for Surgical Research is the military's organization that looks at advanced surgical techniques specifically related to combat trauma that translates right into the civilian world. Um, oftentimes connected with something called the CTI, uh, CTI the Center for or the Intrepid or CFI, uh, which is where those uh, people who have been severely injured in, in combat um, or just in general military service go to rehab. And so there's some incredible physiatrists and uh, pain management rehab specialists that work there. Um, it's a wonderful place. If you ever get a chance to go to the Center for the Intrepid and, um, and just see the work that they do there, it is humbling and awe-inspiring to see some of the folks that will just bend over backwards to take some really injured people, a lot of them very young, and try to give them the best quality of life they can so they can go into their future. So I'm in awe of the people who work down there, uh, yourself included, uh, Bryant, because I know you're, you're helping people who've had really bad days try to get on with a better life. What are the five conditions that you routinely see in practice that family medicine should handle but they turf to you? This is a big one because family doctors, you don't know how many times I have as a I'm a family physician, but I practiced emergency medicine a lot of my career and urgent care medicine. And people who've been to family doctors that have been diagnosed with pink eye that didn't even have their eye stain, and I'd find a foreign body in it. And it drove me crazy. So what are those five things that any self-respecting family doctor should make sure they've looked at before they send them to you? Yeah, so I wouldn't even, if I could change the question a little bit, I don't even, 
care of what the conditions are. Yep. Um, but like you said, what are the things that we just need to look at first of all? That's great. Um, and it, within within our program, and I think with every ophthalmologist, we understand we were there in medical school. You you maybe got a couple hours of eye lectures or maybe a day, and you study for the test, and then it's gone. And um, I think one percent of all of all ER visits are eye complaints. And so unless we're seeing that a lot, like it's just, it falls off our radar and we forget those things. And so I'm not too concerned as an ophthalmologist that, that you're treating things correctly. Um, well, I'll take that back. Now, pink eye, that'd be, that's, conjunctivitis is, is like the number one thing that, that if the family medicine practice doctor can, can, can look at and take care of and, and feel confident about and then refer up when things aren't going right. That's the biggest thing because that's not something that we want to be seeing pink eye. If, if someone walks in with pink eye in our, in our program, I mean, we're, we're down for two weeks. Like that room is quarantined, you know, the residents off for two weeks. And so we super appreciate. Are you serious? Not, not getting, yeah, not getting pink eyes. Is maybe, that, maybe not a full two weeks, but it's just because it's a, if it's a, if it's a, a viral pink eye, I mean, we. It's I not a COVID thing. That's standard. No, no. Yeah. So. Um, wow. I mean, if I get, if I got pink eye, like. I mean, I'm touching 20 people's eyes a day. Um, you can imagine that over, and that, you know, if if I gave it to one of my classmates, and, and then we become this, you know, this nidus of, of pink eye to have to have the hospital. Um, and luckily, we don't see a lot of that. So we're again, we're very grateful for that. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway for, for family medicine doctors is to is to do a good exam initially, just like you said, take a good history. It, it just comes back to just being a good doctor, become a good you know, a good osteopathic physician or a good physician in general is take good history um, and listen to what the patient's saying. You know, if the patient's saying every time I blink, it only happens when I blink, it hurts. It's irritating. If I don't blink, it's not hurting. Well, that's telling you there's something mechanical there going on. There may be mm -hmm. something in the eye that's scratching every time you're blinking, right? Mm -hmm. If they just come in and say, my eye's red, and you go, well, just take some, here's some, here's some antibiotic, right? That's, that's poor stewardship, and it's not being a doctor. Um, and then in the listening, we're just saying, you know, it's been going on for six months now and it gets better whether I'm going to take eye drops and it gets worse when I don't, you know, um, those things start, start cluing you in. And then, like you said, just take a good look. Like we know that most doctors don't have a slit lamp, um, and we're not going to fault you for that, but just when you can call an ophthalmologist or send them over and say, listen, I flip the lids, I don't see anything and I stain them and I don't see anything. And I really don't know what's going on. That enough tells me that you've done your due diligence and I'm, I'm happy to see the patient. And in fact, that's really the, the kind of the culture we have in our program is that we see everything only because we realize that when, when someone's calling us, it's, it's a, no matter, even if they try to like play it off, like it's not that big of a deal. Like, I don't really know what's going on. It's a plea for help. And as an ophthalmologist, we understand, like we've seen the bad stuff and, and we're okay seeing the, the mundane stuff um, every day if we have to, 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 you know, for the one or two missed cases of bad things. Cause we do, we see bad things all the time. We see, you know, someone comes in, oh, I think it's just an abrasion and they've been seeing their, their primary care doctor for a couple of days now, or they went to the ER and then the primary care and they come in and they've got this raging ulcer and they're going to, you know, mm -hmm. their vision is going to be affected the rest of their life because of a scar. Um, and so I think, I think for, for family medicine, do your best initially. And, and if things are, are not right, or if things just don't look nice to you, like just get them out of your chair and, and let them see the, the ophthalmologist. Is there any contraindication of staining an eye other than known allergy? Staining an eye? Mm -hmm. um, no. Now, if there, if if you think that there is, like, if, if it's an obvious, there's something sticking in their eye, you don't need to stain them. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, but, like the pencil. If you're, if you're worried about, 
yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a pencil. Yeah. But if, if, if you're concerned at all, no, just stick staying there and look at it. That's, you can't go wrong. So, Bryant, twice in my career, 25 years, I have encountered dendritic herpetic ulcers in patients who have uh-huh. seen not just once, but been seen twice and diagnosed with pink eye, but had never had their eyes stained. And so yep. I, this is, it bears repeating because people think, well, you're hammering on it. What you just said about, look, you have a person that develops a herpetic infection of the eye. It can cause a lifetime of visual disability, you know, and all it yep. takes is putting a little bit of dye in there and putting a woods lamp on it. And you can see, I don't know what that is, but it doesn't look right. And I will tell mm-hmm. you that our local ophthalmologists, I've dealt with them for years. It might be because one of them goes to church with me. But the other thing is, is I've never once had them tell me, even at the, because these, as you well know, the ophthalmologist goes home at two o'clock on the afternoon on Friday. And God love them. I want them to go home at two o'clock on Friday. But all, but the patient will walk in at 145. I'll have them stain. And at five minutes till, I'll call the ophthalmologist's office and say, I know what your schedule looks like, but could you please look at this patient? And because I flip their lids, because I get a general visual acuity, and because I stain their eye, I never have them complain. Because yeah. I can describe the problem, yeah. and they go, yes, yeah, send them right over. I, that, that bears emphasis. If you just do that, I can, I can categorically tell you, it's not just a, South Tech or a Central Texas thing. It's anywhere. Any ophthalmologist will do that as long as they know that you've done the best you can. I'm convinced of yeah. it, you know? For sure. Yeah, it's amazing how and, frequently and we it's also, we also just know how, I mean, how important people's eyes and their vision are to them and how, how scary it is. And so, um, for example, this last week, I was not on call, um, but I got a, my friend who I play pickleball with, he, he's not a, not military, not DOD. He sent me, a, he's like, hey, dude, something's wrong with my dog. Um, I think his eyes is, is kind of being weird. And I was like, well, have him go see the, the veterinarian tomorrow. <laughs> and then, uh, and just cause I don't want to deal with it. Right. And then, and so he, cause I don't, I don't know, I'm a dog. And he sent me a, he's like, well, it looks a little cloudy. And I was like, well, that's a different story. Why don't you send me a picture? So he sent me a picture and I was like, buddy, like it's 1030 right now or it's 10 o'clock at night. Will you please get in your car and meet me right outside the base? And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah, I need to see your dog like right now. And so, um, sure enough, he had this really, like really bad ulcer uh-huh. and I may or may not have had some extra, medication sitting in my bag from yeah. undisclosed places and I was able to give him, you know, medication that costs $150 that I wasn't going to be use again, but I can use on a dog and, uh, and probably save this dog's vision. And, you know, they didn't have the money to go, to go see their veterinarian the next day and then go see the veteran ophthalmologist and go pay all this money. But like, if again, there's, there's certain, we've seen that bad stuff that like 10 30 at night, I will get out of bed and go see my friend's dog because, I understand how important that is. And, and like I said, most ophthalmologists are, are the same way. You know, what's cool about that is this is the other thing about military medicine. Uh, I got to go through uh, TCCC, uh, TCMC, actually. Mm-hmm. I got to go through TCMC in a couple months because I got to go take a trip again. Anyway, um, you know, inter- the introduction of veterinary medicine to us, because I think a lot of us early in the wars uh, were talking about we don't have enough training for veterinary emergencies and we'd always have a vet, vet around with us. Um, that's a pretty cool thing about the military too, is that, you know what, we've got a lot of service canines running around and we, we all think of them as other soldiers, right? I mean, that's a sergeant over there. That's his name is Sergeant, you know, Sergeant Spot, 
right? That's, that dog is mm -hmm. going to get care from an army ophthalmologist if necessary. That is pretty cool. And it's something that I didn't appreciate the coolness of it until I went through trauma training for dogs for non-veterinarians, right? And I thought, yeah, this is a dog that's out there with a patrol and I need to know how to put a chest tube in this dog and I need to know how to do other things for this dog. And I was totally befuddled by like, where do I start with a dog? I didn't go to veterinary school. And yet, that's the cool thing about military medicine. It's like, yep, you might have one of these things that show up. You better know how to deal with it. At least get the trauma part under control. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. So that next morning, they were, we were finding out patients, human patients that we saw in the hospital overnight. And they said, does anybody else have anything else? I was like, oh, actually, I have an animal. That, so I said, I have you know, a six-month-old pug that, and told the story, kind of joking, and showed the pictures because we're going to be able to take pictures and sharing them now with, just from telemedicine and, or telemedicine and ophthalmology. We've been, been really good taking pictures. So I took a picture of this dog after I seen this dog's eye. And, uh, and just kind of joked, you know, and, uh, and my program director is like, he's like, actually like, thank you for showing that because you guys don't realize this, but when you're deployed, mm -hmm. you're going to be seeing these military working dogs. And I was like, Oh man, like I should probably get some training on some vet ophthalmology because I had no idea. Well, and Brian, you so, don't yeah, have any idea. There. You don't have any idea how beneficial it is for a guy like me who's out in the middle of banana stand somewhere. And I have a digital, I have a camera that I can take a picture and send it through the email and say, what is this? And what do I do with it? Because that's yep. the other thing, uh, military primary care providers are pretty good at following instructions as long as we have someone that can give us good instructions. And I mean, <laughs> I love telemed that way, especially in something like that's amenable to, you know, dermatology, ophthalmology, that kind of stuff that we can do the right thing and not cause further injury. It's awesome. It's super helpful. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's a great change in our they were becoming more aware of I mean, it. Should have been, it should have been obvious years ago that it would just take a picture on your phone. And send it to me, you know, and we, so we did it sometimes, but now it's so much more of a part of, you know, like I think last, last time we talked about um, my good friend in medical school, it's, it's my mom's age. Mm -hmm. uh, she, she was doing moonlighting and she would send me pictures and say, Hey, what is this? And I was like, you need it. That person needs to be transferred now, you know, or other times like, no, it's not a big deal. It, you know, it's amazing how much, yeah, just a, uh, the care is there. And I think, I think we're evolving in a good way for sure. I noticed this occurring, believe it or not, uh, telemed things I've taken for granted for, well, I, I mean, I'm, I was doing telemed in 2004, um, in, out of Iraq, but I've noticed that the direct primary care doctors, there's actually a, a Facebook group of direct primary care doctors who are now putting difficult cases up on Facebook and saying, I got this. And of course it's de-identified, but they'll say, I have no idea what I'm looking at. Does anybody have any suggestions here? And some people say, well, is that, is that kosher? I'm like, well, sure it is. It's just like pulling out a textbook. And if you, you can't make sense out of it, having three or four other people say, well, maybe it's this. Have you considered that? It, it is a force multiplier in terms of the care of the patient because it makes you think of things. Oh, I didn't think of that. That's right. Let me look into that. That's, it's a really cool thing. Actually. I'm glad you treated the pub. I think it's a yeah, and me too. So I think just along that line, I think it's amazing how many doctor groups there are um, that are willing to, to answer things really quickly. Like there's kind of random, but I don't know why. I'm in like three groups about like North Texas snakes. And just because it's fun to see pictures, but people will post a picture of a snake and within five minutes, they've got 20 comments about what kind of snake this is. I've seen the same thing happen within these, these military or within these physician groups where they'll post a question and then you've got experts all over the place happily giving information. So I think, I think, so I think medicine's heading in a fun direction. Well, I think is it, I agree, and, and and when you think of it, I think most people, I think most medical students, may be um, a little naive in the fact that ninety percent of the time, maybe even higher, medicine's pretty boring. It's like, okay, you got pretty much uncomplicated essential hypertension. I'm gonna start Jensen Light Center Pro. Come back in two weeks. We'll check. I want you to check your blood pressure. Blah blah. Out you go. 
right? And they don't get angioedema. Mm -hmm. They just go take their blood pressure pills and their blood pressure comes down. But when you get something that's really a perplexing problem, it's appealing because you want to be part of, feel like you're, hey, I was part of that. Like I helped out. I mean, that I, it it helps someone get better that was really going to be screwed up, you know? Hopefully you, you, you want to feel that a little bit fulfilled professionally knowing that a person was actually helped by something you could contribute um, in a way that isn't just as routine and mundane as a lot of what we do every day is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Well, so what... Here's my next question. What are the developments in your specialty that have caught your interest? What are the things that you've seen that are, and I'll give you one that blows my mind, is my sister has Fuchs, and she had to have corneal transplants. And what I thought about corneal transplants was, oh, they're going to cut out a circle on her cornea, and they're going to take a, a, a cadaveric donation from somebody who donated their organs, uh, their corneas, and they're going to put that in. And they said, no, that's not exactly what's going to happen. We're just going to do the endothelium. I said, what? Yep. They go, yeah, we're going to peel the inside of the, eye, the, the, the cornea off, and then we're going to put it in your sister's eyes, and it, she's going to get her vision back. And I said, are you kidding me? And they go, no, legit. So that kind of thing just is like, you know, technology, if it's of sufficient levels of advancement, will appear to be magic to some people. That I'm misquoting that, but basically, I was blown away by that, Brian. I was like, you're telling me you can do that? And they go, oh, sure, we mm-hmm. do it all the time. Like, what are the types yep. of things that you see happening that are going to really change the way your profession looks at certain things? Yeah, so I think ophthalmology is really, I mean, every, there's always money in every field, right? But for whatever reason, I mean, it's no, it's no surprise. There's a lot of money in ophthalmology. But that, yes, there said, is. that means that there's a lot of innovation within ophthalmology. Um, when I went to my first academy meeting, I was absolutely blown away. They, they bought, like, the city block for the week, and every bus in town was, carrying logos and like, like even the steps were plastered with stuff. So like it's, it's an amazing organization to be part of to begin with. But uh, like I said, because of that, there's so much innovation. There's, um, I mean, even, even like cataract surgery in the last five years, 10 years, the, the technology with lenses now are so amazing. Whereas 20 years ago, it used to be, well, let's just, you know, we'll do what we can to take the cataract out and be safe. You know, and then we'll get to kind of close and we'll wear glasses afterwards. Now people's expectations are they don't want to wear glasses. And so now we're, you know, with these lenses, we're able to let people see 20, 26 inches from their, well, maybe like 10 inches from their face and 20, 20 at distance. And whereas before that's completely unheard of, there's tons of new um, rising medications up on the, on the coming up with, um, I know the, one of the new ones for thyroid eye disease, like that's a game changer in what we do. There's some amazing technology within uh, like macros generation right now um, that are, we're, we're still years away from it, but just that are really like inspiring to see where we're coming from. If someone had diabetic retinopathy 15 years ago, we lasered them. We, I mean, we just went in and just lasered 360 degrees around their eye. Um, and it was, a, it was a big tedious thing. And now we can inject, um, you know, we can do injections every month and, and, and have the same effect or if not better. It, it, I don't know. That's a, it's a tough question to answer because there's so much constantly changing. Even within glaucoma, there's a, we used to, we used to, well, we're still doing it sometimes, but there, there's these surgeries where we basically kind of create a little pocket and the, the conjunctiva and allow the, the fluid in the eye to drain through there. Now there's, there's probably 15 or 20 new devices that we can just insert into the eye as part of cataract surgery or standalone procedure to help reduce the eye, the, the pressure through whereas you used to have this big surgery now it's a tiny tiny little you know looks like the, the tip of a of a pin 
you stick in the eye and, and it helps with pressure. So, I mean, I don't, that's it. That, again, sorry, sir, that's a tough question. There's, there really, there's so much changing constantly that um, it, it's a neat field to be part of. Are you, do you, do you think we're going to cure macular degeneration in your career lifetime? I think we'll do a better job preventing preventing it to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. I know there's like a, there's a big genetic component to it. There's, you know, smoking is a big deal as well. Um, I don't know if necessarily curing it just anatomically when it occurs, like there's just so much damage once it occurs. But I think if we can do a better job preventing it in the, the early initial stages, I think we can see much, much, much better outcomes. Uh, I know there's some companies working on like, um, kind of like, uh, what do they call medical foods and different, different things that, uh, to help prevent it. So I'm not sure that's a tough one. And again, that, that me saying that it's probably as ignorant as, you know, the world not being flat. So <laughs> who knows five <laughs> years from now it'll be. Well, I, I think like you've, you pointed out in the last 20 years, ophthalmology has made, you know, incredible advances across the board. So if they can't quite get macular degeneration fixed, then they're probably still ahead. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, they're much, they're much, much better off today than they were. 50 years ago or, you know, five years ago. So, Brian, let's let's end this middle segment with the last question for you. Like, if you're a student and you're going to do an ophthalmology rotation, what's the best way that you can prepare for that experience ahead of time? I mean, what are the things you see when a student shows up that doesn't allow them to get the best and most, the fullest advantage they can out of doing your rotation in ophthalmology? Yep, great question. So, first and foremost, if you have the opportunity to do a rotation ophthalmology, I highly recommend it. Even if it's just a two week rotation, just to get familiar or to get exposure. Cause that's the majority of the reason that people don't consider ophthalmology is because they've never had exposure to it. If you don't have a good mentor in medical school that introduced it to you or a neat teacher that, you know, got piqued your interest or, you know, someone in the family that's, that's ophthalmologist, most people never consider it. Um, so one, just keep an open mind Two, we know, we don't expect, any medical student walking in the door to know anything about the eyeball. We really don't. And we tell them that like, don't come in scared and nervous that you don't know anything. We understand it. Like that's okay. We're, we'll teach you and help you. Um, there is a, an amazing resource called Optobook, um, book.com. And it's this guy named Dr. Named Tim Root. And he's basically created a medical school curriculum for medical students. Um, he, with a lot of really, really good, funny animated videos that talk about each of you know, the, common things you'll see in practice. There's a book that uh, it's a free PDF online or you can buy it for like five or 10 bucks on Amazon that uh, it takes you probably three hours to read written in super like, easy to read um, language with big pictures and stuff. But, so we, we tell our medical students before you come, at least just re- like read off the book and feel comfortable with it. And that, that alone is, is a big enough, um, is a big enough preparation for, for, for any doctor. Uh, for any medical student routine. And really, I think it's a great resource just for doctors to, to have a clue what's going on with the eye. When they talk about, I mean, it, it amazes me how many how many times a doctor will, will call us and tell us there's something on the cornea and they're talking about the conjunctiva or mm-hmm. they tell us, you know, there's, hey, there's a big mass on the inside of the of the eye, on the, you know, towards the nose. And you say, well, is, it, is there one on the other side? They say, oh, yeah, there's one over there too. Like, well, that's normal. That's a crongle. <laughs> You know, so, so I think, I think it's just a good book in, in general, just to read, you know, maybe, maybe once during your career as, as a, as a feeling medicine doctor or any other doctor, I'll be at the book.com. I'm going to yeah. put it in the show notes. And then, yeah, do that. And so when they get here um, to rotate with us, 
the first day or so or the first half day, we'll stick them with one of our techs and just get them familiar playing with all of our machines. Um, let them practice it with patients, you know, practice doing cylinder fraction, practice that, you know, better one, better two, um, practice take, checking, checking pressures and things like that. So, and, uh, most, most ophthalmology programs, people rotate with it. That's kind of how it should be. It's, it's a very slow introduction and we'll get you, get you in team patients as soon as you feel comfortable. I would love, and I, I have a, um, a Walsh Allen Panoptic, which has, it's meh. I think it was, I, th- I think I spent, I think I, 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 fortunately I got it as a, from a Welsh Allen representative years ago who said I have an extra one you want it. And I used it a couple of times and I'm like, meh, I wish I had an I, well, you're laughing, but I, I wish I had a, a iPhone based retinoscope that I could just put up against someone's eye, go click and get a, get a ret, just a basic picture of the retina to look at. Um, and maybe they have that out there, but, um, they do, mm-hmm. they do something yeah, that so works. One of my buddies. Yeah. So there's, um, so I don't, there's nothing really good yet for undilated eyes that I've seen. Yep. Um, but if you can get the eye dilated and get a hold of a, of a lens, like, like a point after lens and they have disposable ones. So it's not even, I mean, you pay a couple bucks to, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 bucks or, or ask your ophthalmologist friend if they have an extra 20 doctor lens floating around. And there's an app called Omen Direct, or, or sorry, Omen Indirect. And uh, with with from this app, you can take indirect photos, meaning meaning you're looking from your camera through the lens mm-hmm. that you're holding in front of the in front of the dilated eye. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing the pictures you can see. So so that's actually um, part of every morning in sign out because we're not doing it in person anymore. The staff say, "Did you take pictures?" And so we're now I'm taking pictures of everything. Like we had a lady the other the other day come in with. Um, really complicated, like an SJS rule out. And on top of that, she had liver failure and, and Stephen HIV Johnson and syndrome. Stuff. And so, Oh yeah, sorry. Stephen Johnson syndrome. Yep. yep. And so, um, background of HIV and the background of uncontrolled mm. diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension and liver failure. Sick and so when I, when we, I looked in that eye immediately, I was like, I'll pull my phone. Out. I was like, let's record this because this is really neat. So it was, able, it was neat to be able to let everybody see that. But yeah, no, there's, there's really neat um, technology coming that, that allows you to see that. Can you and send me the links to that scans, stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Most of our scans in clinic now, at least the newer ones, um, are, are able to get these amazing photos through, through non-dilated eyes. I would love to have that. Uh, and, you know, since I'm since I'm since we're coming up on the end of this, real quick, safest midriatic I can get. Cyclogel, what? So if I'm if I want to dilate an eye, I'm not going to use atropine because I'll be dilated for eight days. So what what would I use? <laughs> what would I be, what would I use? The family doctor, pretty safe that I can just get the eye dilated for a shorter period of time enough for me to see a good, good what I want to see. What what what's the best product out there? Okay, yeah. So cyclopenolate or phenylephrine, like a two and a half percent phenylephrine. Yep. We actually use both of those almost almost for every single patient. What's the duration? An hour? Two hours? Um, three or four hours typically. Okay. So you give them some sunglasses and yeah. say, you're going to see weird for a few hours, but by lunchtime you'll be okay. Yep. For sure. And of course the contraindication is always going to be uh, angle closure glaucoma or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't want to be. And most of them will tell you like that. Most people who've had that experience before will tell you, Hey, I can't be dilated or I have to be dilated with something special. If they, if they say that at all, just don't even worry about it. Yeah. There's a reason for asking that Giles. We'll get to it in the last segment. Okay. I'll tell you why. Okay, I'm good. Okay, so you good? We'll, we'll go to one more, and then we'll let you go back to your family? Your, good, thanks, your four sir. children's your wife and your pickleball? 
They're all sleeping right now, so it's okay. <laughs> okay, you guys. Um, this has been the second segment with uh, Giles Bryant, Dio, uh, ophthalmologist, uh, in the making, pretty soon, right? I mean, he knows enough ophthalmology now to be dangerous. He could probably go out and practice if the if he gets sent to the next major war, and he's gonna he's gonna do great things. <laughs> well, it's true. They pulled guys out of their general surgery residencies at year three and four to go to Vietnam. So, I mean, you know, you never know what could happen. You may be you may be at camp at Camp Casey sometime doing your doing eyes. Um, and so we'll finish that. Uh, and of course, as always, thank you, Brian. And um, if you're curious about all the things we talked about, as you know, I put as many show notes as I can. So you medical students that want all these references, we'll put them in the show notes. You can just look them at your own little bibliography and start pulling stuff out. And I ask you to leave comments as you would. According to the outro, will tell you where to put them. And um, if you have any questions, please send them to me. Uh, and with that, I wish you another great week. Thank you. You need a break, Brian? No, I'm good. Okay, let's do one more. Oh, yeah. hold, can you hold for just a second? Yeah, go for it. Check. Rotations is the periodic podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the state of Ohio, state of West Virginia, the Department of Defense, or any of its agencies, Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication, or any of the agencies associated with these entities. The guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is produced, hosted, and edited by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is sometimes co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the streets. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema or by contacting me, Todd Fredericks, T.R. Fredericks, at MeWe. If you comment, please be nice. I have sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater. And finally, I would always acknowledge that Rotations was founded and created by Nisarg Bakshi, Brian Plough, and Todd Fredericks, all of whom have various and intermittent input in the production of rotations and we ask always you consider we want it to be the best product that we can give to you so please tweet uh retweet us post us on your favorite social media platform send us feedback ask people to participate in rotations we would be grateful for that it will improve our content and make it a better experience for you take care